Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have Dan Burkow, co-founder and CEO of NAMI ML. In this episode, we discussed what drove Dan to build NAMI ML, the unique involuntary churn scenarios with mobile apps on iTunes and Google Play stores. We also discussed the different risks and concerns that companies like Spotify and Netflix might face by charging their customers outside of the mobile app ecosystem, and what role churn and retention played during the acquisition of Dan's previous company. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael. And here's today's episode. Hey, Dan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure for the listeners. Dan is the CEO and co-founder of NAMI ML, a service that helps you launch, scale, and automate your mobile subscription business. Prior to NAMI ML, Dan was the founder of Double On Core, which was acquired by WPP, and Push.io, which was acquired by Oracle's Responses. He then went on to serve as a senior director of product management in Oracle after the acquisition. So my first question for you, Dan, is what does NAMI ML do in a little more detail and what drove you to start the company? Yeah, I'll take it. I'll take your question reverse order. So our company Push.io at Oracle and became part of the Oracle Marketing Cloud. So Push.io was a push notification service and we became the engine for sort of the mobile channel of the Oracle Marketing Cloud. One of the things that we learned there was that marketers who would buy the Oracle Marketing Cloud would use email marketing and push notifications as really a a giant hammer to solve their their business problem. So be it trying to drive uh, more sales or trying to fight churn, this was the limited tool uh, in their arsenal. So when my co-founder and I of NAMI uh, left Oracle, he was also my co-founder of Push.io, we started to take a look at what's going on in the landscape. And one of the things that had changed since we started Push.io was that the mobile industry in particular was starting to move towards subscriptions. And so mobile was already struggling a lot um, with a churn problem in terms of not necessarily paid users, but just you acquire users through acquisition campaigns, perhaps you've got an audience in your mobile app and you're constantly fighting churn just to keep people in the application. And so then you layer on subscriptions where now there's real money at stake. And we saw that the problem was even more um, challenging. And basically the motivation to to start NAMI was there's got to be a better way to transition 
mobile businesses to subscriptions where it's much more complex, the subscription product lifecycle from moving people from a free user to a paid user and then seeing them through renewal over time and then trying to prevent them from churn. It's just much more complex um, and it gets even more when you want to sell across a lot of different ecosystems. Maybe the subscription originates on the app store, maybe it originates on the web or Google Play. Reconciling all of that is, a, is, is very painful. And then building a strategy around how do you try to retain those subscribers is also challenging, especially for a lot of these mobile first apps and businesses that didn't start out as subscription businesses. They've That's what they're transitioning to. So it's not that they have a lot of built-in institutional knowledge around how do you build a subscription business. So we simply stated want to be basically a one-stop service to to help folks, like you said, launch, scale, and automate subscription businesses that are mobile first. Interesting. And and this came out of your insight as well, working uh, over at Oracle, having been acquired uh, at Push.io. What are some of the ways that you're helping customers uh, tackle churn and retention then? Uh, you said, obviously, I know 100% agree as well. In like the mobile space, it is a lot more challenging when it comes to retention than other, probably particularly other apps, desktop and things like that. So what are some of the ways you're working with companies to help them reduce churn? Yeah. It, we have to take a worldview that is not singularly focused on churn because that's only one part of the, the funnel. Part of what we help startups or you know, large fortune companies or indie developers do is first and foremost, just be more successful in converting users to a subscription. First step for us is that we give them tools to market to app users like they would market to other types of users, except now focused on marketing a subscription versus just a a kind of standard marketing message. So step one is tools to deploy very flexible sort of paywalls, if you will, into an application where you can very much customize what a user is seeing, what offer they're getting, and really take control of the sale. We think that's really important because if somebody doesn't initially convert into something that they understand or that's a good match for them, then on the turn side, you're going to have much more of a challenge. So we help with conversion. And then once somebody is subscribed to, to the subscription, then we manage the entire life cycle. So we know when the user is renewed. We know when the user, maybe in the case of the Android ecosystem, when they pause their subscription, which is a unique capability in that ecosystem. We know when they enter something called a grace period, which a lot of these platforms support, which is when it's time to renew if the credit card failed to charge for some reason. These modern platforms now have grace periods so that you don't have involuntary churn. And so we help our customers know, number one, that they, hey, here's your cohort of users that are in, for example, grace period. But then we give them the tools to actually message those users e- either uh, directly in the application you know, using our software, or we can even enrich that intelligence into their other parts of their ecosystem. So if they're using a CDP platform, for example, data about what's happening with the subscription enriches all sorts of other systems. So they could maybe even send back to email marketing, they could send an email message to, to tell somebody to update their credit card information, which is going to be an email that's much, hopefully, much more likely to be well-received by the user than just some general purpose blast. 
Absolutely. And uh, connecting to CDP as well then gives you access to other channels like potentially yeah. retargeting ads through different social channels and trying to win back customers that way. So the thing is, well, you mentioned in terms of like involuntary churn being one of these things. And I think this is one of the things we haven't talked a whole lot about on the show when it comes to involuntary churn on mobile. And just before the show, we were chatting and you mentioned a couple of things related to it, that there are unique scenarios when it comes to mobile and voluntary churn. Maybe you can talk us through some of those and how you're helping companies reduce that involuntary churn. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the thing is, if you have a subscription business that is, is originating sales, so to speak, or originating subs through mobile, through the App Store, through Google Play, through Roku, through any of these other sort of points, sales channels, then one of the things that implies is that you are one step removed from the credit card processing, kind of the record around the transaction. So what happens is that let's say Apple tries to process a renewal for um, one of your end user subscribers that subscribe through the app store and that fails. In the just a few years ago, what would happen is that would create an involuntary churn event right away. And, and one of the challenges, of course, uh, was that you didn't really know that was involuntary churn versus voluntary churn. There wasn't a good sort of separation of concerns. So you as the kind of app publisher just saw it as a big bucket of, of churn. When that began to change was that Apple, Google Play led the charge on introducing some features around grace period, creating grace periods around these subscriptions. So what happens is that if somebody's credit card fails on the renewal, then those ecosystems will try again for a period of time. And that, that period is different for each platform, but it's a reasonable amount of time. And there's some you know, strong data that shows that there's a, a non-insignificant amount of revenue, re- potential revenue loss that you can avoid by simply having the time to, A, know that, hey, here's all of your users that are in grace period at this moment. So then you can then start to use your other techniques to try to get them to cure the problem. And curing the problem is just simply going into the app store, let's say, updating the credit card um, information, and then that's it. Once it's updated, the app store will will immediately start to uh, try to process a renewal again. And if it's successful, then the user is no longer in grace period and you're off to the races for another month if that's the period or whatever the renewal um, term is. Part of the thing about these new capabilities is that you have to take advantage of it. Just because the ecosystems offer this doesn't mean that, that it's that you get it for free. You have to recognize the signals from them that somebody's entered grace period. You have to then know what to do with that. And there's a number of things that you want to do, including messaging the user in the application that they're in grace period, maybe sending them an email in, in, in kind of a focused effort on getting them to cure the problem. So that's one area where, A, just a few years ago, app publishers didn't even know that they really had an involuntary churn problem because it wasn't exposed to them through these ecosystems. Yeah, and this is something we have talking about, like involuntary churn outside of the mobile app space. And typically as well, like what companies resort to is a dunning period where they try and recharge the credit card a couple of times, two, three times during a period of maybe 15 days before actually cancelling the final subscription. Do any of these 
app platforms have any sort of dunning period within it? And do you have the capability as a mobile app developer to take advantage of those, the timing of those retries? No, you don't really get a control to retries, but yeah, that does, that those mechanisms are there. You know, the App Store and Google Play have their own sort of standard retry periods that they document. So it's not a it's not a secret, but it's also not totally aligned. And that's where back to the origin story of the company is that we're trying to make all of this just a lot easier. And imagine if you shipped on the app store first and then built an implementation that was to interface with the app store that made assumptions about their grace period and dunning retry set of you know rules, so to speak. And then you went to launch on Google Play and the set of rules are slightly different. And if you, depending on how you, if you try to do this all yourself, then you might be in a situation where you don't have the flexibility to adapt to those platform specific nuances. And so that's one of the values of what we do is we just, we abstract away all the platform specific concerns and then express it to you, the app publisher in, in just a singular set of language around hey, this is a user that's in grace period. We notify you the moment that happens. We can enrich your CDP, like I mentioned earlier. And so then you can take action in the moment that that event takes place. What you don't get a lot of visibility into is is each time the platform retries. It's not like we get an extra signal from Apple that says, hey, we tried tried to retry again, just so you know, it didn't work or, right. All we know is that the user's in in the grace period. There is one specific nuance on Android. And again, back to the these platform-specific dis- differences, Android and Google Play, is that if after that period of retry, the user still hasn't corrected their billing information, then they go into something that's unique to that ecosystem called an account hold. And an account hold means you no longer have access to the subscription, but it still is a, mo- a window of time where there's an opportunity for the user to correct before they're churned out of the subscription entirely. So it's almost like a two-stage process that, that buys the, the publisher really a lot of time to hopefully help get the when user to address the issue. Yeah, it's interesting. So as you go into different platforms, it become more and more complex in terms of how you manage this dunning system, trying to get it right for everyone. The one thing I'm interested in, I probably already know the answer, and I really like to stay away from benchmarks on the show, but do you see any any difference in churn rates across the different platforms? Is there anyone that uh, stands out above the rest? Is there sort of anyone that is generally has higher retention? So between Apple and Google, it's not too dissimilar in part because they've got similar techniques in place. To, to deal with this. It, it hasn't always been that way. Apple had grace period first and then Google followed. But now that they essentially are on par, it is pretty similar. However, where it's a little bit different is on the acquis- or the conversion side because in the Apple ecosystem, users are just much more conditioned. Maybe conditioned is not the quite the right word, but from a behavioral perspective, users on the App Store are more willing to pay for things yeah. So, for example, on the, I think the the current number, the last time I looked, of apps across Apple and and Google Play that are support, monetized solely through ads, I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood. Don't totally hold me to this, but it's somewhere in the neighborhood of around two million apps that are monetized solely through ads. 
But if you break that down further, what you what what, what is that actually like 1.2 million of those are Google Play. So there's just much more focus on the kind of ad monetization strategy there. So while they have these tools on Google Play, fewer apps are monetizing through subscriptions, at least so far. That being said, it's it is starting to change. It's just a lagging indicator as to on Google Play. It's lagging Google lagging the App Store, but it but the number of apps with subscriptions on Google Play is indeed growing. Back to your original question, I don't see a lot of difference in the benchmark around around churn once somebody's in a subscription between the two platforms. Yeah, but I definitely think, like you said as well, like people are conditioned. I think that is a good way to phrase it in terms of paying when it comes to Apple. So it's interesting, like what you mentioned, roughly like 60% of Google Play is driven by ad revenue as opposed to 40% on Apple. But the other thing I was interested then as well when it comes to subscriptions and the mobile space is some companies we see as well find a way outside of the ecosystem of Apple or uh, Google to charge for their subscription service. And I think Spotify is one that comes to mind for me. Like I think I originally signed up for Spotify on the desktop and my subscription gets charged off the card every month. Like how... Do you see this being treated when it comes to churn and retention overall, but just generally in the mobile app space? Like, how are companies going around this, and what are some of the risks or concerns with doing so? Yeah, so the reasons one might want to sell direct is that you right are cutting out the quote unquote you know, middle platforms, and you don't have to pay the commissions to the platforms. It works really well if you're a super large brand, right? Netflix does it as well, and but everybody knows what Netflix is, so they have a, an ability to to be out there and market who they are. And if people want Netflix, then they sign up for a trial, and if they like Netflix after the trial, then they keep going. So it's pretty simple. Unfortunately, for a lot of brands, though, they don't have the clout to be able to solely rely on their own direct channel. So then they have to figure out what is the right, how do they strike the right balance between originating subscribers inside of these ecosystems and direct. And one of the the challenges actually that's related to that is if they ever want to, let's say they originate somebody from the app store, but over time they want that user to become a known, not just an anonymous subscriber, but a known subscriber. Then they have to have a registration flow in their application so that they can put a name to that person that otherwise is just transacting anonymously. So that's something they have to start to think about. And then the other thing is that that is a real challenge for brands is that regardless of where they end up in this journey, because it is a journey, right? Netflix didn't start and say, hey, we're just going to sell direct. Shopify didn't start and say, hey, we're just going to sell direct. Both of those started out selling through the channels. And then over time, as they built their businesses, they were able to focus on on, on direct. And so one of the kind of key challenges that exists is ensuring that as you as a business kind of evolve through that, that, that kind of business life cycle is that how do you make sure that you're managing giving the user the best possible experience, regardless of where they originated their subscription. So if I originated a Netflix subscription on the app store on iOS, when they used to sell through that, how how does Netflix make sure that they're still giving me a great experience, even though I didn't buy directly from them? I still want to be their customer and maybe they want to transition me eventually to 
have a credit card on file with them. But so managing that kind of transition, as well as creating that CRM system of record around subscriptions, it's a real challenge. And there's some brands that do this very poorly. And part of it is because you can see in your mind this patchwork of systems where they have a little system they stood up to deal with the Apple subscribers and a little system they stood up to deal with the Android subscribers and the system they stood up that they want to be the kind of key system around their main subscriber database, but they don't talk to, none of them talk to each other. And the other thing too related to this, by the way, is that users use these experiences in different touch points. And so you might sign into Netflix on the web on mobile, on your Roku, you kind of just want the experience to work wherever you are. And so this kind of reconciling where the user purchased the subscription with where they want to use it is actually a huge part of the pain that exists out there. Yeah, that's very interesting. I can see how it can get super complex, super fast. I think it's also like a good uh, segue in terms of, uh, you mentioned managing the experience across uh, the different platforms. And I I wanted to talk as well a little bit now about your acquisition. So you've founded a couple of other companies, both of which were acquired. I want to focus a little bit more on the Oracle's responses acquisition of Push.io. How did that process look like and how much was like churn retention a part of the initial purchase? And then what did it look like post-purchase? Yeah, the, so we ended up, so it was pretty interesting story. So Push.io was a push notification provider focused on mobile. We, We were one of the first players in that space, founded the company in 2009 And pretty quickly, we established ourselves as a go-to provider in a specific sort of set of verticals. And those verticals were media, sports, broadcast news, basically any vertical where speed of delivery was absolutely the most important metric. So as a concrete example, when a breaking news push notification needs to go out for a you know well-known news broadcaster, right? One of them who was our customer said, hey guys, if, if you can't deliver it to an, uh, basically an unlimited number of mobile devices in less than five minutes from when we initiated the breaking news, don't even bother because it's too late. And so that was the sort of SLA that we were held to as a company. We had a great customer list, very well-known brands at the, the, the kind of peak scale that you might expect prior to the acquisition in that category. So then we were in the process of being acquired by a publicly traded company called Responsis, which offers an email marketing or offered an email marketing automation solution. In the middle of the acquisition, Oracle made an offer to buy them and then decided they also were happy to keep the acquisition up with us because Responsis needed a the Oracle Marketing Cloud, which is what we all ended up being a part of and building needed a mobile story. And so we ended up being the mobile story for the Oracle uh, marketing cloud, the mobile channel, so to speak. So one of the things that was, so I would say churn was a factor in the acquisition in the sense that the acquirers definitely valued the, the, the blue chip customers that we had in part as credibility that our technology worked, that we had happy customers, that we were operating at a scale. You can imagine Oracle is operating at a scale unlike basically any other company on the planet in many ways. And so all of those things were really important. But 
the Oracle Marketing Cloud is very focused on some very different verticals. So e-commerce, travel, retail. And that was exciting for us because we knew where we had our strengths. We knew where responses and and the Oracle Marketing Cloud had strengths from a, a vertical perspective. And our hope was that it would just all come together into this really nice, diverse customer base. Of course, what ended up so I, I think we were hopeful going into it. What ended up happening was that for, for, for a while post-acquisition, and, and I, I mentioned this to you before we started recording, once uh, taking a step back in terms of Push.io's own kind of retention, we were really sticky with our customers. And part of the reason was that we were the only game in town when it came to some of these mission-critical requirements. And so once they they landed on us, Picked the tires, saw that this technology worked, saw that it met these incredibly stringent SLAs. They they were with us, and we did we had very little churn. Now we did have a self service offering where your more traditional mix of small, medium, large customers all all across the board would come in. And what we would see there is that if folks spent the time to drop the SDK into their app and do the integration and get over that hurdle, then they were also quite sticky. If they came into the UI and kicked the tires, but didn't take that implementation step of dropping in the SDK, then they'd almost certainly churn. So we knew pretty quickly when somebody would sign up, whether they were going to make it with us or not. Back to post-acquisition, I think that the thing that we ended up seeing is that the while the technology that you build for kind of mission-critical use case is desirable when you want to send billions and billions of push notifications to these other categories, it's building a very different product when you're sending marketing messages and kind of promotional type notifications. Those are That's a very different use case than sending breaking news or sports scores or something that the end user, quite frankly, really wants. And so we just, I would say that that use case difference of a retailer trying to execute an, a cart abandonment campaign through push notification and the breaking news use case did create some divergence, I would say, in the roadmap and where we went with the product that ultimately resulted in some churn of our, what I'll call our legacy customers. I don't mean that in a pejorative way. Our legacy customers were fantastic, but we just saw that the the product roadmap started to diverge a little bit where their interests were no longer sort of the emphasis of what we were working on at the marketing cloud. Yeah, it's interesting. So going into sort of the acquisition, you had your ideal customer uh, profile set, you had a product built for them, Moving into the marketing cloud, then they had a different set of customers, different set of focal points. And obviously, like you mentioned, like having different needs and different problems needing to be solved that your solution had to maybe potentially change after a while. Was this not pre-acquisition? Was this something that was looked at all? Okay, yes, we do have a very diverse user base or it was just something that was overlooked and you thought, okay, what we have because it's super fast, because SLAs are super quick, it should just transition to any sort of category and work for anybody. Yeah, we knew we had a one gap going in to the acquisition, which was we had focused on that mission-critical engine. So our key persona of a buyer was usually kind of the head of develop, uh, head of a pro- head of product, or a CIO, or the CTO group. When the, the customer persona post-acquisition was more of the marketing CMO 
group, marketing managers. And so the gap that we knew we had going into the acquisition, which was part of why we wanted to do it, was that in order to serve some of those other industry categories, much more effort needed to be exposed on kind of campaign management and analytics and KPIs and some areas of the product that we hadn't fully fleshed out when we were focused on our set of customers. So that was exciting to be able to flesh those pieces out. So it's not that we we weren't aware that there were some differences going into the acquisition. I would say that the thing that we, you go into these things and you, when you make a decision to sell your company, you know, fortunately we had a opportunity to make that decision and not do it in a way where it was just going to happen because it needed to happen. It was an active decision of ours that it was the right thing to do for our business, for our shareholders and where we wanted to take the company next. And so we were going into it very excited, but through that enthusiasm, what we didn't totally forecast was what happens over the next two, three, four years. And so I don't know that looking back at it, I could have done a whole lot differently in terms of ensuring that that customer base that we brought into the fold was well served. I guess I was probably a little naive to think that we could serve both the the Oracle audience and the, the legacy audience at with equal measure yeah, and that probably was a bit naive points. yeah you need to end up picking a focal point at some point and it sounds obviously like the oracle space it was a much bigger market as well i'm sure going after that sort of drove that decision the, the other thing then i'm just on this is if you had to go back in time what is one thing that you'd want to do differently yeah it's 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 a tricky question. We were bootstrapped at Pushio for a long time, which, which limited our ability to. We were investing every customer dollar back into the business, and and so that was great. But on the other hand, it limited the areas that we could pull thread on the product to flesh it out in some of these ways that that we needed to be able to flesh it out to, like you just said, address some of the larger parts of the market or, or large parts of the market. One one thing I might go back and do is have con- really contemplate. We got to a point where we had very reasonable recurring revenue and we, we, we might've thought hard about raising money to scale it up. The challenge that we had was that we were in an industry set where, you know, some of the competitors had raised a lot of money kind of from day one a lot of that money was spent to educate the market. So we benefited from that. But still, it, it felt daunting towards the time of the acquisition to think about, should we go and raise money to take it to the next level when we we wouldn't have just on day one raised every single dollar for dollar that the other players in the space had raised for the years and years leading up to that moment. You know, I, I but maybe that maybe the thing that I would have, done is is thought a little bit harder about raising outside capital sooner when things were still getting established, because I think that would have given us some other possibilities. But th- that being said, we had a fantastic outcome. Everybody on the team and our shareholders did well. We, we learned a lot at Oracle. So it's not that it, it wasn't, it was it wasn't a, a billion outcome. dollar exit, but I'm not sure there was a way for that kind of exit to have even existed 
going back in time, making some different decisions because part of it was what was the maturity of the market that we were operating in. And in 2009, this is just one year after the app store launched, we were at the very early part of the kind of mobile maturity model or mobile industry maturity. Now you see folks in the kind of similar space that are doing so much more volume. And so part of it is that the market's just way more mature now. So what a company looks like now and what it needs to raise and uh, what it needs to do in today's mobile is very different from in 2009. Absolutely. Timing is critical of these sorts of things. Cool. I see we're running up on time. I have a couple of questions uh, before we end the show today. One question I ask every guest, let's imagine a hypothetical scenario that you arrive at a new company and you have a new job at this company and general attention is not doing great. The CEO comes to you, is like, we need to turn around things really fast. She says, we've got 90 days to do it. And what would you want to be doing with your time in those 90 days to try and make a dent on general attention? I think the first thing I would I'd probably do is try to really dig in to some customer surveys. If there was an active program to do that already, fantastic. Dig into that and see what customers are saying. And, and if that wasn't being done, I'd try to institute something because of course you're going to, if folks are tepid about your offering, then you're always going to be fighting a churn and retention problem. And it's going to be really hard to turn that around in, in a short amount of time. It seems like that would be the first step to look for me is what are people actually saying about the product? And then next follow-up question to this is what's one thing that you know about churn and retention today that you wish you knew when you got started in your career? Yeah, it's it's just, it's so much harder than it. Everybody, there's so much focused on, focus on the top of the funnel and that, that initial conversion. It's funny, we talk with our customers about, especially when we talk to them before they even launch their products into the market, their, their new subscription products, you can just see how they organize around the launch. Everything's about trying to get to the launch and all the energy, all the effort. And there's not as much. In fact, there's oftentimes very little effort, planning, strategy being thought through around what happens after we launch. What do we do then? And so I, th- I think that this is related to, to the question and also related to the struggle that is out there is that part of the, the challenge with churn is that churn and retention is that you're fighting it later than you should be. And, and it's hard to, it's hard to know that early on, but I think it's, it's related to the fact that so much of the payoff in our world of startups and, and companies and business is about like getting the deal done. It's not right. I want to close a new customer. It's not about, I want the customer to be successful for the next two years and every, so all these kind of short-term payoffs about getting the win are kind of setting you up to maybe not be thinking enough about churn and retention early when you can actually do something about it versus when it's too late and all you have in your arsenal is push an email and whacking people over the head. And very difficult to win back then. Yeah, absolutely. I think when it comes to general attention, definitely like growth has uh, and acquisition takes a front seat for the majority of businesses out there. And ultimately, a lot of companies realize too late because I think initially growth can mask churn uh, issues as well. 
And yeah. if you're growing really fast, you only realize when it's too late often that uh, you have big churn issues. And we've seen that with many companies that have raised millions of dollars and then crashed and burned only months later to realize that retention just wasn't there and they had bigger problems. But Dan, it's been a pleasure chatting to you today. Like, I really appreciate the time. Is there any sort of final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? Anything they should be aware of uh, that you're working on? Yeah, so absolutely. Just we launched actually at the time we're recording this, we launched today on Product Hunt, some new features that help app publishers implement mobile subscriptions even easier with a lot less code because we want to, back to what I just said, is we want to take a lot of the pressure off that launch stage so that you can focus on the whole life cycle. And if anybody is is out there getting ready to launch a, a subscription product that has a mobile component to it, check us out at namiml.com. And other than that, we're always writing different blog posts or content pieces on some of these topics. If nothing else, you've got a blog if, if you're interested in what's going on in the world of mobile as it relates to these things. Very cool. Dan, thanks so much for joining the show today and wish you best of luck now going forward. Hey, thank you. I really appreciate it. Cheers. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.